Well, if you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 9. Deuteronomy, chapter 9. If you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 153. This morning, we're going to be looking at a chunk, uh, verses 6 through 29. We'll be looking at the rest of the chapter. So the, the countdown has begun. We are less than a month from Christmas Day. And that has got me thinking about one of my favorite Christmas time stories, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, it may not be considered a traditional Christmas story, but it is, in fact, a Christmas story. At the time of its telling, Narnia, the world where the story takes place, is caught in an endless winter. A winter, we are told, without Christmas. It is a world that is living under the thumb of an evil witch, a cruel and wicked queen who rules that world with an iron fist. Four children, Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy, somehow stumble into this, new, this world through a magical wardrobe. It's, it is a fantasy story, so you have to take that. But as they do, they apparently fulfill a prophecy told long ago, which said that two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve would enter this world, and that when they did, their arrival would lead to the downfall of the witch and restore Narnia, and that they would sit as kings and queens at a place called Ker Paravel. Now, the children, of course, are completely unaware of this prophecy, but their arrival into the world confirms a rumor that has been floating around the residents of this world, that Aslan, the true king of Narnia, the son of the emperor across the sea, the great lion who created Narnia, is on the move. Winter and the witch are losing their power and their grasp. There is an issue, though. Edmund, the younger boy, has already been to Narnia, though he lied about that to the others. He had met the white witch there, and he had agreed to trade his brother and his sisters into her hands in exchange for being made a king of this world and having his fill of something called Turkish delight. He's a traitor, and he's a stubborn one at that. News of Aslan be, uh, being on the move makes him uneasy, and so longing to, be, longing to uh, have more treats, he abandons his siblings when they won't come to the witch's castle, and he goes there on his own, where he is enslaved and he's made to work for her. The other three children are brought to Aslan, even meeting Father Christmas on the way. See, I told you it was a Christmas story. And they tell him about what has happened. And Aslan takes some of his forces. He goes and he rescues Edmund from the witch's camp and brings him to his own. But there's a problem because as a traitor, Edmund's life belongs to the witch. She demands it. She comes to Aslan and threatens that if she does not receive it, then the deep magic of the world will destroy everything. And unfortunately, she's right. But rather than give Edmund up to the witch, we see that Aslan gives himself in exchange for him. We see the innocent and the righteous being given for the stubborn and the sinful. And so he is killed on the great stone table in Edmund's place. And thinking she is one, the witch goes on and tries to destroy the rest of his armies and the rest of his followers in a great battle. But there's something that the witch did not know about the deep magic that she spoke of. There's a deeper law that says that if a willing innocent gave their life for another, then the guilt of that party would be removed and death itself would turn backwards. 
And so it is that Aslan takes up his life again and rescues all who had been touched by the witch's power and destroys her once and for all. The reason The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe must be considered a Christmas story is because it illustrates in a really powerful way what Christmas is all about. Christmas is not just a quaint story about a baby in a manger. Christmas is about God's work to redeem a fallen world and a stubborn people. The line of the witch in the wardrobe is meant to mirror the work of Christ, the Son of God, who came to save his people from the grip of sin and death. He came to redeem sinners, to transform them into sons and daughters, and to secure the promise that God gave long ago to send a son, an offspring, who would crush the head of the serpent. Lewis meant for us to see something of ourselves in the character of Edmund. His decisions are meant to haunt us with the stubbornness of our own hearts and the trivial treasures that we all prize above the greater glory that we were meant to enjoy in God. His redemption is meant to show us how deeply God has loved us. Lewis meant to show us something of what God has done to save us from that stubborn, sinful heart. And that is what I want to look at with you in our text this morning, God's solution for stubborn hearts. Let's look and read from Deuteronomy chapter chapter 9, starting at verse 6 and reading to the end of the chapter. Now, I know this is a longer passage. If you can stand to stand as long as, uh, as, as I'm going to read it, then please stand. Otherwise, you can remain seated. This is the word of the Lord. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess it because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, You provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly." And at the end of forty days and forty nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people, whom you have brought from Egypt, have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire. The two tablets of the covenant were in my hands, and I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourself a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way the Lord has commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets 
and threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. Then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before, forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you, so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until as fine as dust. And I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. At Tiberah also, and at Massah, and at Kibroth HaTa'avah, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. So I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights, because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people in your heritage whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, this is a, this is a heavy passage. It's not, it's not exactly what you would think of as a Christmas passage. But it, does, it is important for us because it helps us to see the depth of our sin. Sin is a poisonous tree with the deepest of roots. Its fruit is death. Its grip is on the heart and the soul. It dulls our hearts to righteousness and makes us stubborn and resistant to what is good. For those of us who have been born under Adam's curse, which is all of us, sin is an inescapable prison that lures us deeper in with promises that we shall be kings and queens, that we shall be full of sweets. But those promises turn bitter once we have eaten them. And there is no cure within, our, within the grasp of our own work by which we can save ourselves from it. But just as Aslan rescued Edmund from the witch, God has worked to rescue us from our unrighteousness. Not only that, he has worked to rescue us from a stubborn heart. His solution is Christ. And that brings us to our main idea this morning. Jesus Christ is God's solution for stubborn, sinful hearts. In our time this morning, I want to bring to your attention three ways that Jesus does this. I actually have four points for you this morning. In the first, I want you to see the problem that faces us. In the second, the third, and the fourth, I want to show you how Christ serves as God's solution for that problem, serving as our intercessor, serving as the source for giving us a new heart, and then finally, as the one who sends his own, his own Holy Spirit within us to enliven us and to make us live in obedience to him. So let's start by looking at the issue here. 
our own stubborn hearts. You cannot see your need for a solution if you don't first understand that there is a problem. You will not call a plumber unless you know that your pipes are leaking. You won't go to a doctor unless you feel sick. And you will not see the significance of the work of Jesus to be the solution we need unless you first see that there is a real problem with the human heart. This is the third time in three verses that Moses has warned the nation of Israel not to trust their own righteousness. He warned them in verse 4, in verse 5, and now he warns them here in verse 6. This is a hard lesson because in our pride, we want to think that we are better than other people. God, speaking through Moses here to Israel, meant for them to understand that that was not the case. They did not deserve the land that God was about to give them. They deserved the same destruction that was about to come on the Canaanites. They were not more righteous. They were not more upright. As we saw last week, the only thing that set Israel apart to make them recipients of God's blessings was God's grace, his redemptive relationship with them, and the covenant promise that he had made to save them. That is where Moses wants Israel's confidence to lie, not in themselves, but in God. Kids and my generation were always told, believe in yourself, follow your heart. I cannot tell you how many times I was told that in school. That was really bad advice. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? My stubborn fleshly heart will convince me that I am in the right even when in truth I'm in the wrong. It will whisper to me that I am right and that I am safe to take and partake of what God said will kill me. Romans 1 explains that although we live in a world that is beautiful and amazing, although we live in a world where the glory and the wisdom and the grace of God, the power of God is clearly seen, that men continue to suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Paul says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So apart from saving grace, our heart is a bad guide because it cannot see and because it is possessed by a lust for unrighteousness. Most of this chapter is Moses talking to the people about all the very specific times that they followed their heart. And every time we see that their heart led them to do what Paul describes, of refusing to honor God and of choosing to go their own way. A stubborn heart is a rebellious heart. Moses just straight up, straight up tells them, God says you're a stubborn people, and ever since I have met you, you've been a rebellious people. In verse 6, Moses calls them stubborn And then he just begins to list all the ways they and their parents had lifted their fists against God just in the 40 years since he had taken them out of Egypt. At Horeb, on the slopes of Mount Sinai, they had compelled Aaron, Moses' brother, to fashion a golden calf. 
At the time, Moses was up on the mountain itself, communing with God for 40 days, receiving God's commands, just as the people had requested. If you remember back to when Moses had first described this, he describes how Israel was assembled before the Lord at Mount Sinai, and how when they heard God say the Ten Words and the Ten Commandments, they lost it. And they begged that Moses be sent to go talk to God on their behalf because they they knew that if they remained before the Lord, they would be consumed by his holiness. So it was their own idea to send Moses up the mountain. And so he's up there doing that. Meanwhile, although the people could still see the fire and still see the smoke of the cloud that was covering the mountain and protecting them from the glory of the Lord there, they got tired of waiting. And so they go and they get Mo, they go, 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 they go get Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. You see how quickly that shifted? Forty days. The glory of God on the mountain, his voice which had spoken to them personally, which had commanded them, You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall have no graven images. They just chose to ignore. They chose instead to listen to their own stubborn heart, and for that they broke fellowship with God and his commands. Moses gives a very detailed account of his experience of this in verses 8 through 12. He talks about how the Lord had given him the two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments written on them, written by the very finger of God. The same words God had spoken to the people with his own voice as he had gathered Israel at the foot of the mountain. And then he tells Moses the heartbreaking news. He tells them that the people had already violated this command in a most stupendous way, making a metal image for themselves so they could worship it. In verses 13 through 21, Moses talks about how when he came down from the mountain, he threw those two stone tablets down before them and broke them in pieces as a picture of the way they had broken faith with God. And he recounts his own anger at them, how he broke down this golden calf, burned it with fire, crushed it, ground it, threw it in the water of the brook to make the people drink from it. And then he says that the Lord himself was ready to just kill them all right there. Verse 13, he says, The Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. This is where stubborn, sinful hearts will lead us. They they lead us into rebellion against the Lord, and therefore they lead us into judgment for sin. Now, we could perhaps hope that this had been just an isolated moment in Israel's history, but of course it wasn't. In verses 22 through 24, Moses talks about four other instances where Israel rebelled against the Lord in their stubbornness. At Tiberah, they complained against the Lord, and parts of the camp were burned up by holy fire. At Massah, they put God to the test, quarreling with him over water. At Kibroth Hatavah, The people were consumed by their craving for meat, and many died as a result. 
and then at Kadesh Barnea, the people refused to go into the promised land because they were afraid and did not believe God when he said he would give the land into their hands. And so they were exiled for 40 years into the wilderness until all but two men of the first generation to come out of Egypt died there. For all the wonders that Israel saw God do, for all the ways they saw his glory, for all the ways that they saw him work for them, there remained within them a stubborn heart which was inclined to suppress the truth and trust itself. All these instances are meant to prove something to us, something that none of us wants to admit or even really to believe, that we're not the good guy in the story. Left to ourselves, our hearts are not good. They are hearts of stubbornness, hearts that have been captured, fixated on trinkets and false desires for pleasure that will never satisfy us. We are held under the curse of sin and its desires, just like Edmund was held under the allure of the witch's deadly promise. None is righteous. No, not one, Romans 3 tells us. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God, David says in Psalm 14. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. At the root of every sin, there is a stubborn heart trying to assert its will over and against the right rule of God. So Moses goes to great lengths in this chapter to remind the Israelites of this and to prove to them beyond a shadow of a doubt from their own history that what they are about to receive is not something they were receiving because they had earned it. It is a gift being given to them by God in spite of them as a measure of God's amazing grace. In fact, Peter Craig thoughtfully points out that if the gift of the land was to be contingent on the righteousness of the people, then it was going to be a gift that would never be received. And so it is for us, brothers and sisters. Listen closely to Moses' warning here. Do not think that the benefits of God's grace are yours to be earned. Do not think that you are stronger than these people who heard the very voice of God speak to them who saw the fire of his presence and saw the smoke with their own eyes, who received his law and saw his mighty works, who walked through the Red Sea, who saw all of God's mighty works in Egypt and still fell to the stubbornness of their own hearts. You and I are in a desperate need for a solution to this selfish, stubborn heart And that is where we get to see the good news of what God has done to rescue us from that through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus and Jesus alone is the solution for this stubborn heart. And he is the solution for us in three ways. First, he is our intercessor. Christ is our intercessor. The first step to fighting a stubborn heart is first to understand that we have one. The second is to trust 
and our appointed intercessor, Jesus Christ. In the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Edmund finds that it is an impossible thing for him to free himself from the witch's claim on him. Even when he is rescued from her camp, her claim remains on him. To ultimately be rescued, to have his shackles removed, he actually has to hope in someone else who is truly innocent, who can satisfy the curse. He has to hope in Aslan. It's a powerful picture that is meant to depict something about how Christ rescues all who trust in him. In each of the instances where Israel's stubbornness got the better of them, we find Moses playing an essential role. And he does it in a specific place. Did you notice that? He does it on his face. Every time Israel is sinning, every time their stubbornness is showing itself, Moses is on his face praying to the Lord and interceding for them. Now Moses was many things to Israel. He was a shepherd who guided them out of Egypt. He was a prophet who spoke God's word to them. He was a judge who discerned for them. He was a go-between between them and the Lord. But for all the things that Moses did as the servant of God, probably the most important thing that he did was how he went and interceded before the Lord for the people when they sinned. An intercessor is a person who makes peace between two people or two groups. They go as a mediator on behalf of the person who has offended to the person who has been offended to represent the offender and to bring peace to the situation. An intercessor intercedes on behalf of someone else and restores a relationship that was previously broken. So if you're behind on your car payments and I go to the creditor and I pay your debt, I am interceding for you so they don't repossess your car. I am making things right and I am bringing peace to a situation. We find Moses doing just that for the people on Mount Sinai, where he says that he lay on his face before the Lord for 40 days, fasting and praying to the Lord for the people because of how they had sinned against God for the golden calf. In verse 18, he says, Then I lay prostrate before the Lord. That's to lay on your face. Forty days and forty nights, I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and the hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. So Moses prayed to the Lord on the mountain. After, even after God had said, let me alone that I may destroy these people and blot them out from under heaven and make a better nation out of you, Moses. And, God, and then Moses says to him, O oh Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out from Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people for their wickedness or their, or, or their sin. Lest the land which, from which you brought us out say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Looking at the other instances of Israel's stubbornness that we see Moses mentioning, we, if we go to those passages, you'll find Moses praying similar prayers to the Lord on behalf of the people, asking God not to destroy, but to show them mercy. 
This is what an intercessor does. And it is striking to find Moses, after hearing the Lord offer to him to just really take the easy way out, to destroy these people and start over with Moses, not seeing that as an opportunity to make his own name great, but rather seeing it as an invitation and an opportunity to pray on behalf of these people that he loved, that God would not destroy, but that he would save them and restore them. It shows me that as the servant of the Lord, Moses prioritized the glory of God over his own. And so he was able to pray for the people of the Lord, to intercede for them, and to make peace between them and God. It's a vivid picture here that looks forward to the more excellent work of Jesus Christ, who intercedes for us. You see, I believe that God put Moses in the position that he did, expecting and intending for Moses to pray like this for the people. God honored Moses' prayers, not because Moses in himself was able to bring peace to the situation, and certainly not because God had forgotten his promises or because Israel sinned. Well, it really wasn't all that bad, because it was. No, God honored Moses' prayers because he was intending to point us to someone greater, someone who in fact is able to satisfy perfect justice and to restore sinners to God, and that person is none other than Jesus Christ. In, the, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, Paul explains, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now let that sink in. Moses spent 40 days on his face before the Lord, the same amount of time he spent receiving the law that Israel broke so quickly. But as a sinful man himself, Moses had no ability to offer an atonement to God that could ultimately pay for what Israel had done. His intercession is an appeal to God to be merciful. Moses does not present his own righteousness to God as a reason to forgive them. He appeals to the merciful heart of the Lord. Moses' intercession then is meant to point us ultimately to the work of Christ, who is able as the blameless Son of Man and the eternal Son of God to forgive sinners, to atone for their sin, to bring true peace between God and man through the blood that he shed on the cross. Hebrews 12 says, For you, this is speaking to believers, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. That's Israel at Sinai. But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel's. Brothers and sisters, God has given us an intercessor who is greater than Moses because he is the mediator of a new covenant to be received by grace. 
God has given us his own son and established a covenant of righteousness through him. And now Jesus sits ever at the right hand of the Father, Romans 8.34, to intercede for you, having made peace for us by the blood of his cross. That is our Savior, friends. He is our intercessor, our mediator, our assurance that we will not be cast out from the presence of our Father or consumed by his anger. Jesus is not a Savior who tells us to go and secure a righteousness of our own making so that we can come before him. He is a Savior who calls us to come to him so that he can make intercession for us and so that he may clothe us clothe us with a righteousness of his own. What, what, that, what does that mean to you, to know that you have been given such a Savior, a Savior who is more vigilant to speak to the Father on your behalf than you are to pray for your own soul? Such is the beauty of God's grace. Such is the security and the confidence that is ours by grace to come before the throne of a holy God, to know that he actually delights to hear us and to have his sons and daughters come before him. And all of this is because of the work of Christ for for us, whose blood speaks a better word than that of Abel and whose word holds more hope out for us than that of Moses. God has given us a intercessor to rescue us from this stubborn heart. The second thing that Christ does by nature of the sacrifice he has offered is that he actually gives us a new heart. The law that Moses received and conveyed to Israel was good. It was good. The New Testament calls it good. But it was also limited. And it was limited in what it was able to do. It was able to make God's righteous standards known to us, but it was not able to make the hearers of the law righteous. Paul calls the law a guardian, a teacher, which imprisoned everything under sin until Christ came so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to all who believe. What he means when he says that in the book of Galatians is that God did not give the law as a means for you to earn righteousness from God by doing things. Salvation has always been a gift given by God to be received by faith. The sacrificial system of the law was meant to help people understand the gravity of their sin and to help them feel the need for their Savior. Every time they placed their hands on a sacrifice, they were meant to see that there was a conveying of guilt and that the the killing of this animal and it's being burned up on the altar was what they deserved and which they were being spared from because of grace, because God was going to make a payment for them. When God gave his son, he gave him to be the true sacrifice for sin. He gave him once and for all to pay for the sins of his people, keeping the promise so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. Christ in his perfection is able to intercede for us because of that atoning sacrifice that he offered. He is also, though, he is besides just making that atonement, he is also able to do something that the law was not. He's actually able to give us a new heart. Now, there are two Old Testament texts that you need to know. And brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. 
memorize these verses, okay? These are so essential for understanding the significance of what Christ has done. The first one you need to know is Jeremiah 31, 31. The second is Ezekiel 36, 26. I'm gonna get to that in a second. But for now, Jeremiah 31, 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. You remember Moses throwing down the tablets to show how they had broken them? Okay, they broke them, God says. But this, I'm going to make a new covenant. For this is the covenant, God says, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it, not on tablets of stone, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So where Moses says to us, beware of your stubborn heart, the promise that God gives us through the prophet of Jeremiah is this, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a heart that longs for me, a heart that loves me, a heart that is supple and given to obey my good commands for you. I'm going to give you a heart that is resistant to sin's allure, that is going to fight against the flesh and going to thrive in righteousness. This is the gift given to us in the new covenant of Christ's blood. It comes by grace to be received by faith. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, the key to overthrowing a selfish, stubborn heart which Moses warns us about not to trust, not to give into, is to embrace the gift of God's grace that he has so richly poured out on us through his son. This, this is the only hope that we have. And it is a hope that does not put us to shame <clears throat> because God has poured out his love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to our third point, the third way to consider how Christ saves us from a stubborn heart. He pours his own spirit into us. So he intercedes for us, he gives us a new heart, and he enlivens us with his own Holy Spirit. Earlier I said there were two Old Testament texts you need to know, Jeremiah 31, 31. The second one, Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, that stubborn heart, and I will give you a heart of of flesh, a heart that beats. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and care, be careful to obey my rules. The stubbornness of the human heart makes it difficult for us to want to obey God and his commands. In fact, as we see over and over in Israel's history and in our own lives, it makes it impossible. The first command that we saw in the book of Deuteronomy is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And we can't do that without a new heart. That is what makes the promise of Ezekiel 36 and the fulfillment of that promise in Christ so huge. It's what makes Christmas worth celebrating. 
Christ doesn't just awaken our eyes to sin. He doesn't just convict us of how far fallen we are. He calls us to trust in what he has done for us, and then he works in us to give us a new heart and equips us with his own spirit to equip us to fight with sin and its desires so that we can put those old, rebellious, stubborn ways to death. So we fight stubbornness in our own heart with grace, not relying on our own strength, but relying solely on the strength that Christ overcame the world with. We overcome by faith, having been equipped by the Spirit who now dwells in believers and enables them to walk in obedience to King Jesus. In Galatians 5, Paul gives these instructions. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So walk by the Spirit, and the stubbornness of your flesh will not prevail. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from what you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, orgies, and things like this. I warn you, as, as I warned, those, warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, Paul says, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Friends, Christ has not only rescued his people from stubborn hearts, he has replaced them with new ones. And he has given us his Holy Spirit to enable us to walk in obedience to him. By faith, we receive what he has secured for us, that declaration of innocence. And by grace, we walk in that innocence according to his commands. This is his saving grace towards us. It is all-encompassing, and it is satisfying. So as we close this morning, let me leave you with this charge. Remember that God's love towards you is completely undeserved. That's important because it will help you fight pride and equip you with humility to walk in obedience. Remember that having received this by God's grace, not because of what you have done, there is nothing that can shake this gift. Whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, whatever our heart tells us, however we may feel things must be, God's word stands and the work of Christ assures us that he has paid it all. Is there a sin right now that's keeping you from coming to the throne of grace? Is there something you're ashamed to admit to God right now? He already knows it, and he has promised to forgive it because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he calls us to come in confession. Remember, we are in a fight for our lives. But our victory is secure because it is in Christ. And so put to death those old, selfish, stubborn ways that used to control you. Give it to Christ and live by the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, it's that time of year again. And although I think we could celebrate the coming of Christ every day of the year, and although we should give thanks for that every day, 
it's particularly in our hearts, Lord. And so, Father, as we step into a Christmas season, let the hustle and bustle, the expectations, the traditions, let those not take precedent over this, that Christ is our intercessor, that he has given us the gift of a new heart, and he has equipped us with his Holy Spirit. And help us to fight the stubbornness of our sin with those new realities. Lord, I pray that you would humble us so that we would not trust in ourselves. And I pray, Father, that you would also embolden us to come before the throne of grace in hope, in trust, fully hoping in what Christ has done for us. And as we do, Father, I pray that you would just make the benefits of Christ's work just real and tangible to everyone in this room. That our hearts would be truly gripped with how gracious and loving you are. And that we would rely and hope in you and in you alone. And I pray this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.